Welcome to the 206th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Jeff Summers, author of We Are Not Good People. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by Orlando Sanchez, author of A Dream of Ashes and Ava James Mystery, available as an ebook or paperback now. Again, the name of the, the book is A Dream of Ashes, an Ava James Mystery, sponsor of this episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Jeff Summers, author of We Are Not Good People. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Summers, author of We Are Not Good People. Summers is also the author of the Avery Cates series of noir science fiction thrillers. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Sure. Well, I wondered if you could read a couple of pages from your new novel, We Are Not Good People. Sure. Um, I'll just pick it up from the beginning uh, with the two main characters, Lem and Mags, who are sort of low-level magicians, um, are in a desperate search for something, anything that will give them a, like an advantage. Great. So chapter one, there's a girl in the tub, Mag said. I looked up at him. His hair was getting long. It was glossy and silky, a grand black forest of hair. His eyebrows almost met in the middle, giving him a permanently sinister expression. I cannot actually pronounce his actual last name and called him Peter Mags because it was better than calling him Peter the Indian bastard. <clears throat> Excuse me. A 50-year-old dead girl, I asked, thinking bones and webs, a fine bed of off-white dust lining the tub beneath it. He shook his head, pushing his bandaged fingers into his pockets. Recent. I paused in the act of tearing up the carpet. We were broke again. Sometimes it seemed like we'd done all of this before, an endless cycle of failure. The last $17 we'd possessed had been spent on Nielsen, passed over with a pinprick of gas to make it look like 340 in 20s. And all Mags and I had to our names was what was pumping in our veins. We were fucking incompetent. In all things, we'd failed. We were wallowing in a nice, comfy pit of fucking spectacular failure, deep black and hermetically sealed. Me and Mags bound together forever and ever with deep fishhook ties of ruin. I hauled myself to my feet, fished in my jacket pocket, produced a fresh bandage, and began working the thin wrapper free, difficult due to the damp and soiled bandages that adorned all nine of my other fingers, and the fresh slice oozing blood on my index finger. Faint sparks of pain flared from my fingertips as I worked at it. I was careful not to let any blood drip anywhere, get smeared anywhere, leave no mark. That was rule one. No trace of yourself. Blood was usable for only a few seconds, 10, 20. After that, you couldn't burn it away no matter how big the spell. Best not to take chances. The apartment was supposed to have been a good score. We'd heard that Nielsen had a card up his sleeve, and the old drunk had a sheen of success about him, despite floating around our social level, which should have been our first clue. But Nielsen had been a pilot back a few decades, and he worked art, and thus had an aura of intellect and culture that was powerful attractive to men like Mags and me, small minds drenched in blood and peasant fare. Codger spoke with an adorable accent, and I had never gotten past the childish idea that all people with some sort of accented English must be fucking geniuses. When sober, Nielsen was a good operator, and he made some decent cash from time to time, so we took the rumor seriously, and decided to work with him the only way Mags and I could. A little bit of charm, a little bit of booze, and a little bit of gas. 
I think that's probably a good place to stop, actually. Right. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about We Are Not Good People yet, how would you describe your new novel? Um, this would be sort of a, a noir urban fantasy, I guess, would be a good way to put it. Um, in this universe, which is sort of modeled very heavily on the real world, uh, magic actually does exist, but it's not known by, about by many people. Um, anybody could cast a magic spell, but the the way you fuel a magic spell is through blood sacrifice. Um, a very small spell requires a very little bit of blood. Um, a very powerful spell requires a whole lot of blood. Um, and throughout history, very powerful magic users <clears throat> who are called Ustari in this book um, have actually engineered, you know, disasters, wars, you know, horrible catastrophes in order to kill enough people to uh, obtain the blood they need for their magical rites. Um, and our two main characters, Mags and Lem, um, they're pretty skilled magic users, but they have a moral objection to using anybody else's blood. And so they only cast spells that they can bleed for themselves, which of course <clears throat> limits them a great deal, what they can, what, and what they can achieve. Great. Well, uh, do you remember the initial idea that led you to writing? We are not good people. You know, it, it started probably, gosh, about 25 years ago. Um, I wrote a short story and the short story has nothing really to do with the novel, but it. Uh, it was sort of, it was during a fairly pretentious period of my life where I was trying to write short stories that had, you know, big ideas and meant something. Um, and this one particular story had one scene that always stuck with me where the uh, narrator of the story walked out of a diner in the middle of the night. And when he walks into the parking lot, he sees an old man just sort of hovering, levitating in the middle of the, uh, the parking lot um, with pigeons landing on him. And, you know, then it was supposed to be this powerful moment in the story. Of course, the story itself was a complete failure in that moment. It really didn't land. But the image stuck with me. And I began wondering, who was this old man? Why, you know, why would he just be hovering in the middle of a parking lot? And that image eventually grew into uh, the character of Lem and his mentor character in the book, who's the, the older, more experienced magician who teaches him all about magic. And was that short story that you just mentioned, was that published? No, no, it never was. It never was. Uh, no, and was and, it, and, and likely and I, never should have been. Say that again? Sorry. And likely never should have been. Okay. And, and I wasn't clear from what you were saying. Were, were you at that point trying to, to write kind of my, mainstream or literary stories with just interesting images? Or, or would you have considered that story speculative fiction? That would have been more of a mainstream um, literary attempt. I I went through what I imagine is not an atypical uh, period in my life when I went off to college and suddenly began reading all of these great novels and short stories. You know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up and you know, through grammar school, through high school, I was a pretty dedicated sci-fi fantasy reader. Um, then I went off to school and suddenly I was reading you know great works of literature and I got a little bit, uh, you could say inspired. You could also just say pretentious and decided that that's what I needed to do. Um, and sort of walked away from sci-fi for a while and spent a few years, a few very unsatisfying years attempting to be more lofty in my literary goals, um, which I now realize it's, it, it doesn't really mean anything. You can be lofty in your literary goals, no matter what genre you're working in. Sure. So what, what led you uh, from writing, you know, those types of pretentious stories back to kind of 
the literature that, in your words, you loved science fiction and fantasy? Um, I was trapped in a job uh, working, you know, sitting in a cubicle. And one day I Googled, literally Googled um, how to get paid to write. (laughs) Which, again, I'm sure is not an atypical thing for aspiring writers to do. Um, And it turned up a link to an online web publisher uh, who no longer exists. And they were called Another Chapter. And they had this truly bizarre business model. Um, What they wanted to do was serial fiction. And they wanted to get subscribers to pay them, I think it was $5 a month. And you would get one chapter of a book every week emailed to you. Um, And they were taking proposals for all sorts of genres. And I had an old science fiction book that I had written when I was about 18 or 19 years old that had been sitting in a drawer. And I thought, just as an exercise, really, how about if I pull that out and I'll put together a proposal for them? Because they had a very strict um, you know, system for proposing a, a, a book for them. Because I found that the less a publisher is going to pay you, the more difficult it is to actually get through their submission process. <laughs> um, so they wanted character sketches. They wanted um, you know, a detailed synopsis of the entire book broken down into chapters. Uh, and all that. So I said, you know, just, just as an exercise, just because I have this book sitting here, I haven't done anything with it. Let me work it up. And they liked what I did and they, you know, they accepted it. Um, and then they managed to publish about 12 chapters before they went out of business, which is probably about 10 chapters more than I would have expected them to do. Um, but that sort of reignited it for me. The book that was the electric church, which is the first book in the Avery Kate series. Um, and that I had so much fun reworking it. I had so much fun getting back into that universe that, I, I ran with it. And that uh, was the second book I ever published, actually. Gotcha. Well, you mentioned earlier that that was a, a novel, that the one that you pulled out of a drawer that you had written when you were 18 or 19. What, what has been kind of your, your, um, uh, you know, your interest in writing? When, when did that start for you? Oh, I hate to sound like a terrible cliche, but it's since I was a little, little kid. Um, I think... The story I always tell is that when I was very small, and this was back in the days before uh, we didn't even have cable TV, much less a, a VCR of any kind. You know, this was back when you had twelve channels, um, and then the UHF dial. Um, at some point, they aired on television the animated version of *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* by C.S. Lewis, and I was really taken with it. You know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but back when I was a kid, you know, when, when you saw something on television, it disappeared forever. You know, it very rarely were things rerun, you know, and if they were rerun, it was always sort of a shock, you know, oh my God, today at four o'clock in the morning, they're rerunning this show. (laughs) Um, So I was very, even at that young age, which was probably seven or eight years old, you know, I was very conditioned to be like, oh, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. I'll never see it again. Um, And then we were taken on one of those forced field trips to the library um, in school, you know, where they march you down. I don't know if they do this everywhere, but in Jersey City, New Jersey, when I was a kid, they would take the entire class and march us down to the local branch of the library. And you would be ordered to get one book at least, and which you would have to do a report on. Um, and of course, I went in there and I was looking for a book about magic tricks or possibly Reggie Jackson would have been a, a, you know, a suitable subject. You know, I was very excited about that. And I remember very distinctly walking by a bookshelf and there was The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. And it had never actually occurred to me before 
that things on television might have source material, that there might have been something it was based on. And this was just absolutely mind-blowing to little Jeff. I mean, little Jeff just stood there and was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> uh, not only that, but there were six other books that were you know, sequels to that one that just extended the story. And that, that just paralyzed me. It's like, oh my God. And I started taking those seven books out week in and week out. I would take them all out. I would bring them back. I would take them out again. Um, and I just reread them over and over again. It was such a, an amazing moment for me to think that I could experience the story anytime I wanted to. Um, and that's what set me on the road because then I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I, I spent a lot of time pretending, you know, to be different things. I go, you know, all kids do that. I was an astronaut. I was a magician. I was a spy. Um, and then I started to pretend I was a writer and, uh, my mom had this ancient old manual Remington typewriter. Um, and I basically stole it from her and I would just sit there and it started off just purely pretending. And then over time I actually started writing little stories and I just never stopped. That's, that's a great story. Well, um, I know you made the switch from science fiction noir with your Avery Kate series to, as you mentioned earlier, kind of a noir urban fantasy with we are not good people. Was, was that a deliberate choice to, to switch from science fiction thrillers to supernatural or urban fantasy? Uh, yes and no. Um, when I finished the fifth book of the Avery Kate series, the final evolution, um, I had been at that point, I had written four novels in, in five years basically. And while that's not a punishing pace at all, it, it was a lot of time to spend in one universe with mm -hmm. one character. Um, and it was also the first time in, you know, in those four years that I wasn't under contract and I was sort of free to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, so there was sort of a conscious edging away from the, the, the cyberpunk noir sci-fi kind of thing going on with, with Kate's. Um, and I wanted to do something a little bit, a little bit different. Um, but I do think the books in a lot of ways have a lot of tonal similarities. Um, I think the universes are actually similar in a sense, um, even though we are not good people is set in a very realistic universe, um, except for the fact that, you know, except for the tiny fact that magic is possible. Um, it's basically this time and this day and age. Um, but and actually in, in my mind, in the back of my mind, subconsciously, the books are linked in a way. Because mm -hmm. um, I actually, you know, I actually see the Avery Cates universe as literally the future that's coming in the We Are Not Good People universe. Right, right. Um, and I've even actually played with the idea that uh, Cates's uh, ancestors are in that universe right now. Um, and I've played with the idea of even having a character named Cates in there. That would be like his great, 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 great grandfather. Um, but that would be purely for my own amusement. And there's far too much of that in my books already. So I'm sort of <laughs> backed away from that a little bit. Gotcha. So, so what is your writing process like? Do you outline extensively or do you write more organically? Um, you know, I, I did a, uh, a presentation at a conference a year ago uh, talking about just that, that subject uh, and the, the terms pantsing and plotting, you know, mm -hmm. like when you write by the seat of your pants and you're just pantsing along um, as opposed to outlining everything very carefully. Um, and I came up with the term plantsing um, <laughs> because I always start off when I was younger, I was definitely an inveterate pantser. I just made everything up as I went along. Um, I completely disdained any kind of outlining uh, and part of it was for me, when I outline too extensively, it's very much like I'm writing it already in my head. And then when it's, when it's time to sit down and actually write it, 
it's sort of like keyboarding. It's like transcribing what I've already done. And it's a little more boring and it's a little more laborious for me. Um, cause I don't have that spark of discovery anymore. Um, so I used to just always sit down and just bang it out. And then I would go back later and try and figure out where the problems were and, you know, what needed to be done. Um, these days, what I do now is I start off sort of pantsing along. I'll start off just writing off the top of my head. Um, but when I run into trouble, when I run into plot difficulties or, you know, writer's block or something like that, um, I've taken to actually stopping where I am and then going back, going through what I've already written and outlining a little bit from there. You know, I'll start by creating a skeleton outline of what I've already created just to make sure it all hangs together and that they're, you know, it sort of makes sense. And then I'll outline a little bit further from there. And this way you can do sort of branch offs, you know, what if I did this and see what happens or what if I did this and see what happens. Um, and then once I feel like I've gotten back in control of the story, then I go back to just making it up as I go along. Gotcha. Well, well, given your success in, in publishing uh, the Avery Kate series and now uh, we are not good people, what, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who maybe listening who would one day like to have their own novels and stories published? Um, yeah, I, I don't think I have any magic words of, mm-hmm. of wisdom. And I, you know, I think probably most writers have this reaction when they're asked this question. Um, it all boils down to, you know, do the work. There are no shortcuts. Um, I submitted a lot of manuscripts. I wrote a lot of query letters, um, you know, before I, landed an agent before I sold the novel. Um, and there, I don't think there's any real other way around it unless you obviously, unless you have some special connections, which is a whole other situation. And if you do have special connections, do not hesitate, you know, don't feel bad about that. Use them for God's sakes. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one who resents people who have, you know, an uncle, you know, who can get them a contract, go for it. You know, you call your uncle for God's sakes. Um, but otherwise, you know, um, submit, take feedback that you get and think about it. doesn't mean you have to, you know, agree with it and work with it, but think about it every time you get some, um, and just keep at it. There's really nothing else you can do. Gotcha. So do you feel like you, you know, things now in terms of publishing or, or even just the writing and the work that you, uh, that you may wish that you had known earlier? You know, the, the main thing that I wish I had known, uh, prior to selling the electric church, Avery Kate's number one is that publishers, especially in genre, but I think in general, they always want the second novel. They always want you to have ideas for the next book. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of fell into a trap and I think a lot of writers fall into a trap of you spend so much time working on that one novel, you know, that, that, that first book. And then when you sell it, it's wonderful and it's celebratory, but then they say, okay, what's your follow-up? And you can easily find yourself in a position where you've got six months to go from idea to finished manuscript, you know? And so you have a situation where your first book took you 10 years and you were able to revise and route it through beta readers and research things and really, really scrub it down to a fine polish. And then you've got a very short window of time to throw out the second book. Um, Because when I published the, The Electric Church, I didn't have a strong sense of sequels. I didn't know where I was going to go with it from the end of that book. And, you know, the publisher offered me a two book deal. um, I'm sorry, a three book deal. And then they threw two more books on top of it a few years later. And I got there, you know, I was able to 
you know, sit down and think about it really hard. And, and I came up with, you know, a, a, a series that I'm very proud of. And I took it to a place that I'm very proud of. But it was sort of a shock for me at the moment because I had put all my energy into that first book. And if you think you've got a chance to sell a book, you should be thinking about your follow-up. Gotcha. And and what was that process like for you? Um, was there was there any um, trepidation in terms of writing the fourth or fifth book when the earlier books had already been published, just in terms of kind of the overarching story? Were there times where you were like, oh, I wish I could go back and rewrite that? Or I, I didn't have any storytelling regrets. I did start to have a sense that some some of the people who really enjoyed the first book and the second book didn't come with me where I went on the third, fourth, and fifth books because I, I definitely took it into a, sort of an apocalyptic direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an idea when it, when the sequels came up, you know, which was it's always delightful, of course, when a publisher says, hey, can you write four more of these? Um, and when that came up, I thought about what do I want to do with this story? I've created this universe. I've got this character. Um, and I decided fairly early on that over the course of the sequels, I wanted to tell the story of a civilization falling apart, you know, basically the world ending in, in a way. Um, not necessarily from an asteroid impact or, you know, alien invasion, but just from uh, entropy, just from, you know, civilization losing cohesion and falling apart. Um, and so the story got bleak, you know, it got very bleak very quickly. And I did, I do think there were some people who really enjoyed the first book and I started to get the sense from, you know, reviews and emails that I was getting that they weren't coming with me on the journey. So I don't necessarily regret that. Um, but it was definitely something that hung over me a little bit as I was writing the last book. Mm -hmm. And did you just kind of try to ignore that as you wrote? Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I had sort of committed by that point, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it would have been sort of an interesting twist if all of a sudden, you know, I had my character wake up in the last two years <laughs> yeah. of the plot where it was all a dream. I'm Bobby Ewing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it was also, that's what I wanted to do. You know, it was it, from the very the first moment I had, I knew I had a chance to tell a, a story over a, a multiple book series. I knew that's where I wanted to go. I, right. I wanted to have a, a definite trajectory. And I wanted it to be bigger than just the individual character's experience. I wanted it to be more on a global scale. Gotcha. So, so what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read in the past year that made an impression on you and that you would mention or recommend? Um, let's see. Throughout the last year. Um, or a year or two. So <laughs> it's, it's always hard to think about. You know, it's it's one of those questions where people say to you, you know, what have you read recently that you love? And you, I always draw a blank. So I'm going to have to uh, go down to my bookshelf here and just okay. take a quick look at what I actually have read recently. <laughs> um, I know I'm a little bit late to the party, but I read The Goldfinch this year by Donna Tartt and really enjoyed that. Um, I think it's one of those books that some people don't quite get why it got such a reception and why it won the Pulitzer Prize. And I think there's so much going on in that book that it's definitely a book I'm going to go back to and read again at some point, try and catch everything that's in there. Um, let's see what else is on here. I tend to read a lot of older books, unfortunately, mm-hmm. or fortunately. Um, I'm a big fan. I like to go to used bookstores and pick up books from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago and, you know, pay a dollar for them. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, we put such a, a premium on new, you know, mm-hmm. new books um, every book was new at some point. And, oh yeah, absolutely. 
you know, especially when these books aren't necessarily famous books mm-hmm. that you read about in class or that you, you know, constantly see mentioned in blogs and stuff. It's fascinating to see a book that was a bestseller in 1960 um, that no one ever talks about anymore. Right. So I, I, I like to and, pick and, up a and lot Any of those stuff. stand out in your mind? Um, what did I read recently that I really loved? Um, I mean, so I do apologize. I'm trying oh, to that's think okay. of Not a problem. one that I just had in my hand the other day and I cannot remember now what it was. Um, there's a, I found this book recently. It's called, no one will ever have heard of this. Mm-hmm. It's called the crime book of JG reader by Edgar Wallace. And I picked this up just because it has a very distinctive cover. Um, it's got a great skull and crossbones design on the, on the cover. Um, and I bought it at, I think, uh, uh some used bookstore in New York city mm-hmm. about uh, six months ago. And I had to, come home and do a little research on him. And apparently JG reader was a very, very popular detective character back in the thirties. Um, sold, you know, tens of thousands of copies was very famous. You would, no one knows who this guy is anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a, a couple of novels in here. It's like a collection of several novels and they're really good. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's a, the thing about mysteries, especially, is that you know, people have come up with these fantastic ideas about how to structure a story, how to how to fool the reader, how to misdirect you, and you hear about the really famous ones, you know, like the murder of Roger Ackroyd or, or something like that. But there's thousands of these novels, and they're all really, really smart in how they fool you and how they bring you along. Um, and you, you you can't buy these books anywhere but used bookstores anymore. Sure, because <clears throat> most of them don't even have uh, you know ebooks at this point. Right, right. Um, another one is similar story to that is there's a it's a short it's more of a novella. It's called uh, Murder in White, um, and it was republished the, the over in Britain. One of the publishing houses has been picking up older detective novels from the 30s and 40s and reissuing them. And this one was released last year and it shot right to the top of the, uh, the bestseller charts over, over in England. Um, just cause it's a nifty story. You know, it's, it's about a group of people traveling on a train through rural England and the train just stops dead on the tracks and they don't know why. And there's only six of them on the train and they get out and they start walking to see if they can go get some help. And they come across this cottage in the middle of the country. Um, and when they go in, the places, the fire is roaring, dinner is set on the table, music's playing, but there's no one there. Um, and they decide to stay in the, the cottage to see if anybody comes back. And of course, one of them ends up dead before too long. And it's a, it's a great setup. It's well-written. It's a charming book. And it's one of the rare moments where you see somebody get a second chance. Yeah, especially in publishing. That's, that's very rare. Yeah, I know. Yeah, believe me, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if someone is interested in learning more about you, where can they find you online? Um, I have a website at uh, jeffreysummers.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-S-O-M-E-R-S.com. Um, I also have a Twitter account um, at Jeffrey Summers. Uh, and I've, I also have a Facebook. I have a personal Facebook and there's also a Facebook page for fans of my writing. Gotcha. Well, and I'll have links to all of those in the show notes so some, someone can take a look there. 
Um, and again, we've been speaking with Jeff Summers, author of We Are Not Good People. The book is available in bookstores now or download the ebook. And Jeff, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.